My guest today is a man who dedicated over 24 years of his life to service in the Royal Marines. During that time, he saw active service in Northern Ireland, in Iraq, and he undertook multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan. But it was one wet and windy night while returning to camp after Christmas leave that tragedy struck. After witnessing an RTA on the M5 motorway, he pulled over to help the family in distress, only minutes later to be involved in an accident himself, which would see him sustain life-changing injuries. After battling back through gruelling rehab to regain his independence and sense of purpose, he's gone on to become a motivational speaker who now goes into schools and uses the lessons that he's learned in his life to help motivate and inspire the next generation, as well as constantly and continually setting himself physical and mental challenges, which have to date seen him become the owner of four world records. My guest today is somebody that I'm proud to call a friend. And after hearing his story, I'm sure you're not only going to be inspired, but also intrigued to see what it is that he has in store next. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Mr. Lee Spencer. Welcome to the show, mate. Cheers, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, and I appreciate you giving up your time. No, uh, up here Because it's a special episode today, because this is the first ever episode of the Charlie Charlie One podcast, and I couldn't think of anybody better to have on here, mate, so thank you very much for giving me time, I appreciate it. <laughs> now I just want to have a chat. Um, I'm sure many people listening to this have heard of you already, and they know some of the things you do now, but potentially not before. You know your career uh, prior to your accident, things you did serving, the actual accident itself, how that happened, and then some of the crazy things that you've done after. So I'd like to cover that with you, and obviously I want to start at the beginning. So let's take it back and. Tell us when it was you actually joined the Corps. When did you decide to do it and, and that journey you went on from there? Um, well, I joined the Corps in 92, uh, 1992. Um, but actually, I've got a, um, I, I suppose the way that came about is less than, uh, I suppose, typical, would be okay. the way I'd describe it. I, there was never any fault of joining any other arm of the, uh, the armed forces, you know, it was always, I always wanted to be a Royal Marine. And that really comes back to, I suppose, when I was about 13, mm-hmm. uh, 12, 13, the Falklands War was going on and, and the Royal Marines were prevalent in that, they were front and centre of everything that was happening and especially in the media. Uh, but it goes back, bef- um, it, it sort of, it wasn't just uh, the Falklands, it was uh, the local British Legion where my dad drank. Now my dad was a, um, he wasn't in the forces, he was a merchant seaman for a bit um, and then he was a stiletto. So. Do you have a, a big, do you have any military connection in your family? Um, no more than uh, my granddad, um, my dad's dad was a uh, stoker in the, in the Navy in the war okay. and he was very much still involved with his oppos societies and kept in touch with everyone from his ship and he sort of ran the local British Legion. Now in this British Legion, um, my dad for some reason, even though he had no connection to the World Marines whatsoever, he sat on a table that was all old Royal Marines and that struck me even back then as some, there was something different about the Royal Marines. Mm-hmm. No, none of the other cat badges um, would all sit together, you know. But the Royal Marines were, we are the Royal Marines, and they called their table the Royal Marines mess deck. <laughs> so I kind of grew up uh, from a very young age hearing all their stories from the Second okay. World War. Some of them, um, subsequently when you join the Marines and you, and we all know of the kind of japes and escapades yeah. that our friends and lads have got up to, the, these guys were doing them back in the, time, yeah, back in the day in the, in the Second World War. Um, so there was always something special about the Royal Marines that I recognised. Um, 
And I remember, you know, when you have a careers fair before you take your options at 13 in school. Oh, at Royal, school? Yeah, they had okay. a Royal Marine uh, recruiter there. And I went up to him and said, you know, I want to be the Royal Marines. And he says, okay. He goes, uh, are you captain of a football team? I went, no. He says, cricket team? I went, no. Rugby team? He says, no rugby team. We did play rugby in my school. He went, are you in any of the teams? I was like, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, we're kind of really just looking for the um, the captains of the football teams. They're, they're, oh, really? Yeah, so I kind of left that conversation with a sense of, um, you know, Royal Marines are, are kind of like superhuman. You've got to be... Right. And, and I'm not that person. I, I'm, uh, despite, you know, really trying at football, mm-hmm. so, so I can't even say that I didn't like it, you know, and that's why I wasn't in the team. I love football, I played football all my life. Just terrible You just weren't good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm an incredibly unsporty person, or, or I was growing up. And uh, I, I, I fell into a job that I really hated, mm-hmm. um, but it was a job. And uh, I kind of went and tried to join the Marines at 18. I didn't get past the uh, careers office interview. Okay. And uh, finally, I kind of uh, realised that if I carried on doing the job I was doing, I'd blink and then 10 years would have gone past. Yeah. And I kind of left. I didn't kind of, I left my job. I thought, right, just, I can't do this. So I left without a job to go to and then um, started thinking about the Marines again. I thought, well, I'll give myself three months to get fit and then have one more last go at it. And I did. And got through the careers office, got to the PRC. And actually, I scraped everything, all the physical mm-hmm. tests, I scraped them. But I really felt that like I finally found something that I could be good at, and that was not giving in. Right. And, and that that's really uh, where my life changed. Mm-hmm. And love, well, passed the PRC and then got into training. Um, 635 troop, joined up on the 2nd of March, 92. Um, and went all the way through training with her and and then went from there on I, I sort of I felt like I found my space my mm-hmm. place in the universe found what I was meant to do sensible on it yeah yeah do, do you yeah. think you said about scraping through things and, and never giving up do you think that was because you had no plan B um, no I've, I've, I'm kind of I know who I am and I know mm-hmm. what I'm good at and I'm not really good at things. I fail okay. most things. I, f- I think the only thing that I really uh, ever went through uh, first time was uh, was training. I mean, I I, I, I was like I passed a sniper selection in four two, and then subsequently failed the course. Okay. Was, it was back in the day where you'd done the badge tests, so there was like a series of five tests mm-hmm. at the end and you had two goes of passing. If you didn't pass them at all, that was it. Mm-hmm. You, you felt there was, uh, was a couple of guys who, you know, really um, uh, like capable uh, soldiers. I wasn't one of them. I, I scraped, I, I'd failed nearly all of the tests going through. But one of them, he passed nearly everything and then just messed up the one at the end. So okay. it kind of changed the way they done the, uh, it was like two out of 12 past uh, my sniper's course. But on the back of that, I got in a sniper multiple in Northern Ireland and we were attached to a unit called JSG then, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, Op Sansom. Okay. Um, what's called Op Maximize. And that stuck with me and I ended up, because even though I failed the sniper's course, it got me um, in a sniper multiple, mm-hmm. which meant that we was working with a, uh, a unit that I'd never have heard of or mm-hmm. never had any connection with. But years, years later, that always stuck in my mind. I then applied to join that and, and, that, and that's what I'd done towards the end of my career. Op Samson, I'm probably gonna get this completely wrong, that was kind of the plain clothes, sneaky beaky, undercovery kind of stuff? Yeah, 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 it was. Um, it was, uh, uh, the unit's called Defence Human Unit. It's, I think this is all out there now. Mm-hmm. You know, that you did books about them, um, and basically ran agents in Ireland, mm-hmm. and subsequently that type of job went. Um, 
throughout the, the world now. Okay, so you did it Ireland, and when you came back, what other deployments did you did you go on? Um, sort of, it was kind of in that time uh, in the in the um, 90s of between kind of things at the core. Doing you had uh, Kosovo came up, mm-hmm. uh, four or five went, and I wasn't part of that. Uh, Sierra Leone sort of came up as well, but that was a very very small deployment. Um, and it was mainly just exercises in Norway, and I got into um, uh, skiing in Norway. Okay. Again, it's an environment I loved. Um, I've done a MSI's course, and then I've done an MST's course. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, myself as a very, you know, before I lost my leg, yeah. a very competent skier. Um, so I kind of, you know, it was in that main where you was going Ireland tours and Norway. Okay. And and that seemed to be the bread and butter of the call before the world went mad when the uh, Twin Towers came down. Yeah, I remember it because uh, I was here. I was at CTC. I, I started training February 2001, passed out also as an original in October. So four weeks before we did was when 9-11 happened. And like you say, the world went crazy. So I'm assuming, you were, were you involved in Jakarta in 2010? Um, I was busy failing another course. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's not failure if you learn from it. Well, it's it's um, it's it's, it's actually uh, it, it's it's my mission to take failure into schools, and, and perhaps we'll talk about that later yeah, yeah. on. Um, but yeah, so I, I was um, uh, out in Cyprus with Forty Command. I was in Charlie Company, a search commander there, and we had just pulled up. It was on Ocean. And we'd just come in to uh, uh, Cyprus, and funny enough, we were in the tiny room in the mess, uh, named after, dedicated to the memory of Tiny Winter. Um, and it was with Tiny, he was a big part of that, big character in Forty Commando, but a big part of that, um, that old deployment. And uh, we sat and watched on the news, mm-hmm. you know, everything unfolding then. And then um, I'd. I uh, got on selection. It took me a couple of years. It was it was one of them where I, I put in for it, and then the paperwork got lost. Yeah, yeah. before the days. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and finally got on selection. I think they put me back about a year, two years, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, I had to get because of my age, I had to get special dispensation <laughs> to go down, <laughs> uh, which ultimately. How old were you? I was thirty-two. That's not too old, is it? Yeah, it, that was the cut-off point. Oh, okay, right, uh, understood. It's changed now, mm-hmm. but it was 32 was mm-hmm. the cut-off point. So I got a special dispensation because of my age. Um, when uh, and I had a conversation with my soul major, uh, a child company called Ben Jackson, and he was like, right, I've got you a flight back for mm-hmm. the selection. He goes, but you know what's, where we, what's potentially gonna happen now? Mm-hmm. And um, I'd gone through the core as I said, going through those training evolutions and mm. never, you know, apart from Northern Ireland, um, you know, it, it was the first time, the first thing the Corps was really gonna get involved in, mm-hmm. get his teeth into uh, since the Falklands. And I knew I was gonna miss it because I couldn't put off selection. Mm. It was now or never, because yeah. yeah. I had to get, because of my age. Uh, so I had that conversation with say, right, the Corps, I know what's gonna happen. It's mm-hmm. written down, the Corps is gonna go off and do this amazing thing. And then, um, I'm going to fail selection. And that's more or less what happened, except when uh, 40 came back from Jakarta, we started gearing up uh, to going into Iraq. So Tell I was it. actually uh, on Telic 1. I was on the Vader 1, was our call sign, okay. the helicopter, the front, which was, there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of arguments over who was actually the first into it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was there, mate. I was on Telic 1 too. Yeah. I was in Charlie Company and we went in on the first night, so that was, you know, it was an experience. Yeah. How did, how did you find <coughs> Iraq? Um, hard work, really, really, really hard work. Did you really? Yeah, yeah it was, um, every, I'd, I'd lived my ethos for being a bootneck was only fork and be cold and wet. Mm-hmm. And I spent, like, you know, exercises, taking little bits of morale, like, I'll take a, proper coffee maker yeah, yeah. You know, and then you go to um, you know having these little luxuries and things mm-hmm. in, in the, to just carry water and ammunition and that was all you carried and um, 
it was the the initial fighting phase which lasted a couple of weeks or a week or so and then there was that we, we lined up actually I can remember the day vividly we lined up to do an advanced contact to clear this area that um, had uh, Iraqi army positions in and we got up and we started on the HR started moving forward and that was the day that the, um, the Iraqi army in the southern part around Basra just packed up and went home um, and uh, after that we settled into a um, next month or so I think it probably was a just real hard patrolling mm-hmm. and um, uh, was trying to do a lot with not a lot of men so it was, it was we were stretching ourselves thin physically okay. whereabouts were fought there at, well, they took the oil fruits didn't they yeah we went into a thing called the MMS which is a manifold and maintenance station that's what we captured mm-hmm. um, and all of the oil in southern Iraq kind of just came to this one point mm-hmm. um, and then it was piped out okay. into uh, uh, into the Gulf um, and it was if they, it was all rigged to blow and if it had been blown it would have been an environmental catastrophe as right. well as everything else involved with uh, that so um, on the first night on, on the <clears throat> on the uh, first uh, Iraq war where they just bombed everything for like a good two three weeks mm. before the land forces moved in um, this was slightly different they captured as much of the infrastructure as they could before all of the, um, uh, the heavy machinery of war sort of rolled in. Mm-hmm. So we was part of that. I think there was a SEAL Team 6. Uh, SEAL Team 6, now Bin Laden, it was SEAL Team 7. Right. So it, and if it's the other way around, it was SEAL Team 6 that went in. Um, they sort of landed uh, and then turned off all the oil obviously you know, I've been practicing it again and again and then we came and landed and took the outer buildings of this manifold and manifold meeting station in the mess okay. and then once we've done that once they said yep yeah, clear once we've got the last yep yeah, clear on the last building that's where everybody else started rolling across their start lines okay so what was after Iraq what was next um, selection uh, I went did I go back on selection this is going to be between Telek and Herrick. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember. No, no. Uh, yeah, after Iraq, sorry, I, I'd done selection twice mm-hmm. in the two goes. And I was um, I was going to have a third go. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a conversation with the um, uh, head of training, head of Tiwi, um, in Paul. He says, well, you know, what happened? I says, well, I just didn't cut it, which is the short answer. And he said, what do you mean you didn't cut it? I says, well, I just didn't cut it. I gave it everything, but, you know, I, it didn't work out for me. And um, he then said, you know, well, all right, fair enough. And, uh, and I said it was like a flippant remark at the time, but I meant it. And I said, you know, it's because it's gone, because I know if I could, if I could just get over the hills, mm-hmm. I know I'd pass because, you know, I don't get fredders, I don't get fed up with things, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, when you're cold and wet and mm-hmm. like miserable, there's always that one idiot who's still cracking jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. Right. And he went, well, wait there a second, then he walked out and he came back and he says, <clears throat> what we're going to do, we're going to try and get you a third attempt to train as if you are, um, and uh, we've got a good relationship with Hayworthford, so we should be able to get you on. And I trained and trained, um, and then the signal came out for the next selection, and I wasn't on it. And I rang them up. <laughs> I spoke to uh, uh, the OC of Tiwi, which is a training mm-hmm. uh, part of the SBS, and he says, uh, he said, okay, uh, I go, he took my number and he said, I'll call you back. I find out what's happening. And he rang me back and he says, yeah, I had a conversation with him. It was a combination of you being rubbish. And old. Wow. <laughs> he wow. said well, he didn't use those exact words, but that's what he meant. He said if it was if it was a fact that just your age, yeah, we could have done something about it. If it was a fact that he came off quite early, we could have probably done same. Right, right. But the two combined. Gotcha. <laughs> I'd say it was quite a gain. That's um, a morale smasher, eh? Well, it was because I 
it, I felt like I'd been training for years, mm-hmm. and then it had gone. Yeah. And I had no focus after that, but it was immediately taken up by a rack, um, and that obviously focused me again. Mm-hmm. So it was on the back of a rack, kind of went for a period of being a bit lost, I suppose, in my career. So I didn't know what I wanted, yeah. and I, I certainly didn't have a focus. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm a, a person who needs a focus, something to train for, a purpose. I don't know if I am, if that's inherently part of my character, but it certainly um, left me quite flat. Okay. Um, and I got drafted to the display team, okay. um, which was amazing. And I very nearly, I had an argument with the RSM at Stonehouse about it. And my exact words to him uh, were, <laughs> mucking about around the country, I didn't use those yeah. word, it was a profanity, I said mucking around the country with a bouncy castle, it ain't me sir, I'm a soldier. Right. <laughs> so again, um, there was a there was a lad in their defence who wanted to do it, and I didn't, so he said send, uh, send his name's Louis, send Louis down. I know Louis, yeah. I think that's where we first met at our defence, wasn't it? Yeah, Probably yeah. in 2003 yeah. or four. Louis, Louis Lewin. Yeah, I know Louis. He said, so he sort of turned up with Louis, this is in Norway, his office, and he went, no, you can't do it. He goes, you've got to be, whoever we send down has got to be made up to acting sergeant, and he looks too young. So I was like, oh, so you're basically saying that I can't, I've got to do something I don't want to do because I look old. You know, your age is still working against you. <laughs> yeah, but actually, when I, went, when, um, I came down to uh, uh, Paul, and he turned up first day, Scotty Mills was uh, part oh. of it, and it was all the lads from 40. Right. Being, you know, Charlie, a lot of them from Charlie Company and Albert Company. When I found out what we'd be doing, I was like, this is going to be the best three months of my life. And it, and it did turn out to be like that. Okay, everything. Afghanistan, multiple tours? Yeah, I've done three tours, but um, that uh, job I'd done in Ireland uh, for that unit, mm-hmm. that had always stuck with me. And um, I think, uh, Failing selection knocked my confidence quite badly, um, which is unusual because you think I'd be quite good at failing things by then. <laughs> but I, uh, I put in for um, uh, special duties, I volunteered for special duties, okay. and um, failed the first course, mm-hmm. or part of the first course, which everyone on my course did. It was about 100. 1,617 people started off with the selection mm-hmm. and then 22 of us actually got on the course and out of that 20, out of the, that original intake, only three of us got the qualification and that was on our second go of the mm-hmm. course. So it's quite an intensive yeah, course. Sounds, yeah. um, so I'd done my three Afghans as part of that unit. Okay. And you survived Northern Ireland? Iraq and three Afghans unscathed relatively unscathed, unscathed. Yeah, yeah. well absolutely unscathed so let's then talk about when you escaped let's talk about the the incident where you, the accident rather where you were where you were injured and sustained life-changing injuries yeah I was um, uh, I'd come literally to the end of my career um, and I was looking at going outside uh, the job that I that I was doing they're incredibly short of people to do it, so um, I always had the option of extending, mm-hmm. which is what I did. So just before Christmas leave, um, leading up to my 22 year point, I put in an extension, a three year extension, and I was going back to work after Christmas leave to start training up for a, an operation of deployment in, it was in Africa. And um, that's when my life changed, yeah. Was, so it was a it was a really stormy, horrible night, um, a Sunday night, and uh, I actually got a flat tire in Devon, pulled over the side of the road, and took a picture of me uh, my van that been I jacked it up and I was changing the tire myself, mm-hmm. and I posted it on Facebook with the comment, "Well, this journey couldn't get any worse." Oh no, <laughs> absolutely true. A couple of hours later, uh, around midnight. Um, on the M3 just before the M25 junction yep. 
came across a car that had crashed into the central reservation. It literally just happened. It was there wasn't a lot of traffic on the road. In fact, it was empty, um, and uh, it was a BMW five series, it kind of straddling the um, fast lane and the middle lane. Right. But his bumper had gone. It was always smashed up. So I immediately pulled over. Uh, there was a guy who just pulled over just before me. He was on the phone. So I was like, are you on the phone to the emergency uh, services, CC out? So I thought, well, job don't have to do. Um, and mate, it was like, is there anyone left in the car? And he says, I don't think so, but they're all over there. And he pointed and, and about 10 metres back down the road, there was this group of people. They were, it was three Polish people. So it was a, a very heavily pregnant woman and two guys. Um, and checking them over, anyone who'd done Afghan, as you know, you get a very high uh, level of training in mm-hmm. first aid, so I counted myself as a competent first aider. Um, but I was checking them over, making sure they're all okay, and you've been thinking about um, uh, internal injuries or anything like that. And I thought, the, the only thing I can really do now is to walk up the uh, carriageway using my phone uh, to warn oncoming traffic. And as I turned, I heard a huge bang, um, and I felt I just a lot of noise and screaming, and I felt myself hit, and I could feel myself moving in space. And I must have about three or four minutes of thinking, okay. um, that really could have only been a couple of seconds. And I kept telling myself, "You've got to check yourself over. You've got to check yourself over." And I kind of came to a, 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 a kind of standstill, kneeling down. So I couldn't see my like, right leg had, at that point had gone. Um, Completely off? Yeah, but I couldn't see it because when you're kneeling, you sort of go, your leg goes behind you. Yeah, yeah. Except when I looked down, my left leg, if you can imagine, was pointing out, uh, going to the side oh, completely. Yeah. And I looked at it and it was one of those things where you look, I had to look twice. Mm. So I had something not quite right with what I'm seeing, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And then I looked and I went, oh yeah. And, uh, Realised then that I was badly injured, and what I'd done, I'd been knocked over the barrier into a grass verge on the other side of the uh, barrier on the um, hard shoulder. So I kind of fell backwards down like this grass verge and crawled back under uh, the uh, metal barrier, and that's when I saw. Well, it it was I kind of fell backwards. Okay. So I crawled back onto the um, uh, in onto the. uh, hard shoulder of the motorway, mm-hmm. and that's when I noticed uh, the right leg had gone, and uh, I was bleeding to death essentially. What happened is another car, an Audi A6, had smashed into the BMW that had crashed mm-hmm. with such force that the engine block and gearbox completely came flying out, and that's what hit me. And that's what took your leg off. Yeah. yeah. So you pull over, midnight, rainy. A car's crashed, straddled between the centre lane and the fast lane. Yeah. You pulled over to help, and then ended up sustaining life-changing injuries yourself. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through, if you don't mind, the, the no, next, no, no. what happened? Because from what I know of our friendship, from when we've spoken before, and what I see online, you were bleeding out from your femor, uh, from Yeah, your yeah. I was, I was kind of. Um, I, I, I knew. Well from experience mm-hmm. that we both had, that I had between seven and 12 minutes to stop that bleed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I was I was difficult because I couldn't actually get to it myself. Right. Because I was, you know, I was quite badly injured yeah. and it was a hard thing to get to. Um, and almost immediately, um, you know, like a pickup truck, if you ever break down mm-hmm. with the orange flashing lights, yep. one of them pulled up right next to us, put on the big flashing light, so I felt secure. But the guy, I was like, I need a tourniquet now on my leg. And the guy was really reluctant to um, kind of, he kept saying, I can't go down there, I'll be sick. And I remember saying, right, right you're going to be sick, but I'm going to die. Can you see the difference? Yeah. But he couldn't do it. It was just, there was nothing I could do. He kept saying, oh, the ambulance will be here in a minute, ambulance will be here in a minute. And all the time, I could, I'm ticking off all of the classic symptoms of shock, and I know I'm bleeding to death, and I'm mm-hmm. ticking them off. And, and I, I promise you now, I'm I'm not over dramatising the actual situation, but the only way, or the best way I can describe it was, I, I felt 100% that 
I was on the edge and I was staring into the oblivion. Now I know that sounds overly dramatic, but now you're talking to me, I've been there yeah, myself, man. But I, 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 agree. I know, I always feel yeah. like people think that I'm over egging it for no. effect, but it's the only way I can really describe accurately mm-hmm. how it felt then. And it was at that point really um, I had my phone in my hand still, you know, right. so I was gonna go down walk down a carriageway and use the torch on my phone to yeah. film oncoming traffic. I still I hadn't let go of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I'm a family man like yourself, uh, wife and two kids. And I considered making that phone call yeah. very briefly and, it, and I knew that if I'd have made that call that would have been an admission to the universe and so to let it go and just yeah, mm-hmm. that this was a fight that I weren't gonna win. Mm-hmm. And I, and I never felt. I felt if I'd have done that, I may not be here now. I know that it was. It, I actually I'd lost over half my body's blood. Mm-hmm. I was on the edge of where people die. In fact, people die when they lose as much blood as that. Yeah. Um, it, it was really down to being a bootleg, really, because mm-hmm. physical condition, stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> And, and stubbornness, but actually physically, yeah. that I'm here now anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'd have made that call, then maybe I wouldn't. I don't think I would be. But it was at that point when my uh, guardian angel, I suppose, yeah. rather strange guys of a, a large Rastafarian gentleman yeah. called Frank, is coming down to see us the weekend. I remember. I remember when you spoke on stage from a Blesmer Awards event a couple of years back. Seems like a great guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, it's a big part of my life now. So what did he do then? He stepped in and did yeah. what the other guy. Yeah, was he's like, like I said, and he said, Look, "Can I help?" I said, "Yeah, I need a tour cane now." And he's whipped his belt off and we tried to get tight as we could. Couldn't get it that tight, tight enough to stop the flow of blood anyway. Mm-hmm. So I got his daughter, Zanelli, to span with the femoral artery. So I'm laying down and she stuck her heel as hard as she could in, into the groin area okay. and you've got like a the, the femoral artery is what supplies the whole of your leg mm-hmm. with blood and by digging and putting all her weight on it she kind of stopped the flow gotcha. and that's that's why I'm here yeah, we waited Frank says about half hour I think it was about 20 minutes but undoubtedly I wouldn't be here I would have, I would have bled out I was mm. I was a, maybe as little as two minutes if that from bleeding out yeah. anyway. And so you get to hospital, you know, a combination of what happened on the roadside and the medics and doctors save your life. You go through an intense rehab process, you get yourself better, get your independence back. You're obviously dealing with a lot of stuff mentally as well. You know, I know you were coming towards the end of your career, yeah, but I'm this kind of put the final nail in the coffin, I'm guessing. Um, it kind of did, but I never, I I woke up in hospital and Jenny went, I'm here, yes, yeah. lost my leg, but mm-hmm. I'm here. Um, and I think that maybe that sent me on a trajectory that if I'd have woken up and not realised what happened and yeah. oh, what's happened, said, oh, you've lost your leg, oh, no, my career and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was just so happy of being alive. Gratitude. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've never, I, I used to be able to put myself right back into the moment of uh, of impact, really, and I and I can still do it now, but not with the same amount of clarity because mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. You know, that between now and then you forget bits, but I used to be able to go right back and hear all the sounds and everything, and, and could dip in and out of it without having any problems or you know any feelings. Towards yeah. It, it, it's it's strange. Um, but yeah, I never, never really had. You had moments, obviously, mainly when you take your leg off and sit down in a chair and you, go, and you see the remote control on the other side yeah. of the room. You're like, oh uh, no! <laughs> you have to put your leg on again to go. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that you know, little minor. Yeah. Bits and pieces. That's why it pays to have little kids. Yours are grown up now. Yeah. One, one still run around grabbing <laughs> the remote for me. But you know, it is what it is, Mark. Yeah. You know, I'm a single below me amputee. Mm-hmm. And if if you're going to sustain a life changing injury, dare I say, mm-hmm. this is the one time. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I wake up in the morning, I haven't got a leg. 
so I put one on yeah. at a very very basic level that's been solved mm-hmm. you know yeah now I would love to to delve into rehab and recovery and all that kind of stuff but what I'd rather talk about um, during the, the last part of this is after medical discharge or during that process some of the crazy stuff you've done mate um, because we were talking about this before we went on and started recording some of the things you've got planned for the future which I'd like to touch on but just tell us a little bit about uh, the rose uh, and all those events you've done raising money for charity raising awareness and dropping your hashtag your hashtag you use not defined by disability you know, tell us about all that well that, that sort of came from um my personal journey I suppose and it, and it is an intensely personal thing too and, it, and it's given me a little bit of a mission in life dare I say um, and that's when I woke up in hospital the night before I got I worked undercover in at the time the most dangerous place on God's earth mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the level of training to get you a person to, to a position where they can operate in those environments it's really intense and I felt when I looked in the mirror you know I was proud of the person that looked back mm-hmm. and I was someone who defined what they could do by physicality I, I defined myself as a Royal Marine mm-hmm. by I defined myself by as a person who I felt that there was nothing that life could throw at me no challenge that I wouldn't be the equal of mm-hmm. arrogance um, maybe but Confidence. that's not the point it's that's the person I thought I was mm-hmm. and I thought that person had gone forever and I'd have to redefine who I was but within the realms of disability mm-hmm. and I thought if I'm going to be a disabled person I'm going to be the best disabled person I can be and then um, at the end of my first year as a uh, amputee I, I got an opportunity to become part of an all amputee crew to row an ocean, mm-hmm. uh, which we did do. We, we set off in um, uh, December 2015 and rowed across the Atlantic from the Canaries to uh, the Caribbean. And we got a Guinness World Record, the world's first all amputee crew of four to row an ocean. Mm-hmm. But more important than that is I realised kind of halfway across, about three quarters of the way across, that. I'm still the same person that I needn't have tried to redefine who I was mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, there's a little bit less of me, mm-hmm. and I can't emphasise how important it was for me to rediscover that sense of self. It's something that, unless you've lost, you can't really understand how important it is to your life. Mm-hmm. It's something that we all, everyone, takes for granted. Mm-hmm. It's that thing that's you. And if you've lost it, it's a massive hole in your life. Um, but more more than that, it got me thinking about, um, you know, I, I felt I had to define myself by disability because I was now disabled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the person I was. But that made me think about how we as a society define disabled people. And we do tend to define people who are disabled by that disability. Yeah, I agree. And it's such a silly thing to do. No one else is defined by something they're not good at. I'm never going to win the 400 metre hurdles. Right. But I've now got four Guinness World Records. Uh-huh. You know, so, all right, I am disabled. I'm not saying I'm not disabled. But I can do so much more. But I'm not very good. I'm never going to be good at running and jumping over things because yeah. I've only got one leg. Right. But no one else is defined by their by what they can't do. No yeah. one else is. Uh, do you know Steve? You know Steve. Steve was never likely to be an astronaut. You know, no right. one else is defined by something they can't do, unless you're disabled, and then it does tend to define you. And that's where I got the idea for me second one, the, the rowing marine, uh, where I thought. I had the experience of rowing, mm-hmm. um, so I knew I could do it. Um, I got the sponsorship together and, and put the whole project together, and, I, uh, and and the and the reason behind it, uh, actually first and foremost, was to keep wounded and injured servicemen in the nation's conscience. The further we get away from the conflicts, and less it's in the news, the less mm-hmm. people care. More people forget. And. Uh, we're both intimately connected with the Royal Marines charity. We mm-hmm. both see what they do 
not just um, for wounded Royal Marines, but the family as well, and it and it enables guys and, 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 and girls and families and kids. Um, it allows those people who've had their lives shattered in our service, and I don't count myself as one of them. I I wasn't injured in service. Well, you were technically. No, but I wasn't injured doing that job. Right. But people who were mm-hmm. and are, I I absolutely passionately believe that we as a society we owe them a life of dignity, mm-hmm. nothing more. Mm-hmm. A life of dignity, not just now or then when it was in the news, but yeah. for the rest of their lives, because they'll need that support for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And that, and I felt that if I could do something that would keep wounded, keep injured, yeah, it would keep it building on kind of what Invictus does. Invictus does it on such a mm-hmm. much bigger, bigger stage and a, and, a, and a much bigger level. But if I could help, that was the main driving force behind it. But also, what I wanted to do was prove that no one should be defined by their disability. Mm-hmm. And I thought if there, there was an able-bodied record for, um, I could get a, a world record for being the first physically disabled person to row solo and unsupported from mainland Europe to mainland South America. Okay. But I also saw there was a record that was set in 2002. Actually, only three people have ever done it in history. It's quite a difficult one. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, the record was the able-bodied record was 96 days 12 hours and 45 minutes i thought that was beatable and i thought if, a, if i as a disabled person could beat an able-bodied record something find, yeah something that's physically demanding yeah as rowing an ocean i thought that would send a massive statement out that no one yeah. should be defined by disability and that was more of a kind of a personal mission for me um, because of the way I define myself by disability at the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's what I set out to do and ultimately done it. <laughs> so you know, we, we talked that you talked a lot in the beginning about failing this and failing that. You know, it's it's not I, I don't define anything as failure as long as you learn from it. You've had a, a very successful career. You've hit a lot of road bumps on the way. Um and we don't have to go into much detail if if you don't want to, but I know from reading and again from, from being your friend that there was a, a road bump, that's not the right way to describe it, but an incident when you were due to set off, which delayed the oh, yeah, solar yeah, road yeah. the first time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, um, I got there, got to the start line, and then three days before I was due to set off, uh, unfortunately my mother died, um, postponed the road um, by a year, and was set and tried again in December last year. You have to row the ocean in um, winter because it's out of hurricane season. Oh, okay. So hurricanes are less likely. Um, actually, the first run, I say hurricanes are less likely. We, we were hit by Hurricane Alex, and that was the first hurricane in January in the Atlantic for 78 years. Really? <laughs> yeah. You rode the storm? That's how genuinely unlucky I am. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so I postponed it in December. Uh, went back out there and just sat and looked out at sea, waiting for the weather to change, and it didn't. And then I finally got off in um, uh, in January, January the 9th. I set off from, I was hoping to leave from Gibraltar, but there was no weather window, and I couldn't delay it anymore. But there was a weather window from Portugal. doesn't change the, the actual um, uh, record. But I set off from Portugal and got across. And even then, I, you know, it was, it was a series of failures. I got, got the complete navigation system failed. And, and if you look at, and um, when I talk about failure, it's, I've, I've got a philosophy really, uh, that got, if you've got time, I'd like, you know, come yeah, on yeah. to you. But if you look at my row, I've got, I've got three Guinness World Records. I beat the able-bodied record mm-hmm. by 36 days, you know, mm-hmm. over a month, I took yeah. off the record. and. And that mission in keeping wounded injured service people, especially, you know, particularly Royal Marines, because I'm a, I am a Royal Marine, keeping them in the nation's conscience and also getting the message out of not defined by disability. That day that we came in, it was in 20, the main news in 27 countries. Really? It was, in, it was the main news in the UK here. Mm-hmm. I know it, that. It got, it, 
it done everything I wanted it to do and mm-hmm. more. But if that's that's just one small part of it at the end. If you look at the row as a whole, it's disaster after disaster yeah. after failure yeah. after failure after failure after failure after failure. Tiny bit of success. So if you take the whole thing yeah. and, and work out what percentage of that mm-hmm. is success, it's overwhelmingly, the whole process is overwhelmingly a big disaster. Yeah. It's just the end bit. <laughs> but that's the only bit that matters. That, that's that's what a lot of things are though. I mean, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but the, was Edison who invented the light bulb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know how many, how many times that guy failed? Over a thousand, well he failed over a thousand times. And then he had what you call that little bit of success. Where would we be about that success? Well, this is one thing, and you would have experienced this as well, absolutely known you have as well through our friendship and talking, that when you lose a leg or a limb or a part of you, for some reason that qualifies you to give out certificates at school. So <laughs> <laughs> you yes. have no idea why. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but it does. Yeah. And it puzzled me at first. And T-shirts. What, and you get loads of free t-shirts, don't you? Yeah, why. and wristbands. Yeah, wristbands and t-shirts. And um, I, got, I, got, uh, I got asked to go to schools and, and I was giving out these certificates and over and over again, all I heard was teachers banging on about success. You're gonna be a success at this, you're gonna do this. It's gonna be amazing successes. And I, they kept bugging me because I kept thinking, no. To the pupils, I, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Overwhelmingly, life's a disaster oh, okay. <laughs> with those little tiny little successes. successes, and it's it's actually there's there's a quote that's wrongly attributed to Churchill. Mm-hmm. I don't believe he said this, but people say that he he was. Mm-hmm. Right, this wrong quote is still amazing. Is success is navigating from failure to failure with mm-hmm. enthusiasm. Yeah. And I, I, I started um, being asked to talk in schools, to talk to students, and, and it sort of developed um, up about two years ago, it kind of finalised itself, and I've been doing it now for a good couple of years. Well, I talk about failure. I start off and I say to the kids, right, I'm going I'm to tell you about something now that I, it, it, it's the one thing that connects us all. You, me, them, everybody, but you know, the teachers, me, your parents, every one of us, every one of us will fail. And then I tell them my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I go back and I point out the failures. I say, right, what's that to do with failures? And, and I point out all the failures all the way along. And I say, you're gonna fail in life. You're gonna fail because life happens to you, mm-hmm. like life happened to me. You're gonna fail because life happens to someone you love, like me it happened to my mother you're going to fail because you didn't prepare well enough you're going to fail because you just made an honest mistake but you will fail and and the trick is is to pick yourself up and go again that's and if you can master that you can master anything mm-hmm. and and my my belief my philosophy on life is this really and it's the message, it's the core message. And it's that we're kind of conditioned into thinking of success and failure as being polar opposites. Mm-hmm. I believe that they are so entwined with each other that it's impossible to succeed without failing. No, I agree completely, of course it is. And, and, my, and the trick is to have a dream, mm-hmm. okay? so. One thing, like when I fell, when I when I went to that bloke in the in the careers fair, said I want to be a one man. He said, "Ah, you're not the sort of bloke we're looking for." I never lost that dream, Mark. Mm. I always wanted to be a one man. And when I went back to the careers office, and I went, "No, nah, not you." Mm-hmm. I still never lost that dream, and that that's the trick. If you can keep alive your dream, it's so important mm-hmm. to, to to have that dream. So. The, the, the phrase I use is dare to dream mm-hmm. and if you don't fail you ain't dreaming hard enough get a bigger dream have a dream so outrageous that you're guaranteed to fail the first time that you attempt it and, and, the, and, the, and the thing is with kids nowadays is that life is so much about success they put their, pick their phones up and all they get on Instagram and yeah. Facebook mm-hmm. and uh, Twitter and probably a load of other 
social media platforms that I don't even know exist. They, they're just getting, look at my, look at my successful life, look at my wonderful car my parents have got, look, right. at, look at my great house, look at, the, no one ever puts normal life down. But a lot, a lot of that's fake. And this is the problem, and this is why it's great what you do when you go into the schools and you tell them about this, because this generation, they, they're, they're brought up and weaned on all the, you know, reality TV and, and fake Instagram celebrities and stuff stood next to this car, oh, you know, I work one hour a week and this is what I've achieved. And they almost, I think, you know, being a father of three, think that they're entitled to success and they should get it in an instant. They don't learn, like you say, about failures or what it takes or being resilient or getting up and dusting yourself off. I agree with you 100%. And, and, it's, and it's the dealing with, well, why isn't this happening for me? Right. Am I not a worthwhile person? Mm -hmm. I, you know, and it starts, you start feeding in all those feelings. And I, I, the crux of what I do really now is talking in schools, mm -hmm. going and, and, and spreading this message. And the reason I do it is you see, you see a kind of look in the kids' faces when I go, oh yeah. And, and they, they don't, they're not, no one's ever told them mm. that it's okay to fail. Not only is it okay to fail, you've got to. Yeah. You can't go through life. Achieve. You can go through life never failing if you never attempt anything mm -hmm. worthwhile. But and what also, life's that? I know, I know, it's a sheltered one. But also, I, 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 this is my personal opinion, children nowadays think adversity is not being able to get a Wi-Fi signal. But when you stand up in front of them with one prosthetic leg and one severely injured leg and you tell them your stories, it kind of puts things in perspective and they think, oh, actually, the fact that I didn't get a Wi-Fi signal isn't that big a deal yeah. because look what this man's gone through and look what he's done and look what he's teaching us and telling us. And, you know, it, it's, there needs to be more of them, mate. More, more guys that you see going to schools and teaching this to the next generation. And here too, here at Limston, with the injured recruits and the guys that are down and they think they're never going to make it and they haven't developed that resilience yet. Getting in there and saying, look lads, you know, this is a, like you say, this is one of your micro failures that leads to macro success. You know, you just got to be resilient with it. Yeah, and it, it is hard, you know, because that's their reality. Mm -hmm. When you're feeling like that, that's your reality, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it does take, uh, it takes an enormous amount of uh, mental gymnastics sometimes to get a grip of yourself and get yourself out of feeling that way. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. And but it can be done, and and, and uh, okay, it, it's with 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 kids in schools, and this is how it came about. It was the stark contrast of what the teachers are telling them mm -hmm. and reality, and what life is like. You're going to be such a great success. You're going to be amazing. Your lives you're building now are success, and. Uh, uh, what I also do as well is I do a follow-on session. So I, um, I do like a, a, as big a group as I can and tell the story and talk about failure. And then straight after I have like a follow-on session with the naughty children or yeah. you know um, those with challenging behavior. And one thing that you see with them, and he, he, every single one of them, is I start saying to them, I say, look, you know, why are you here? And they all look round and they're like, yeah, we're the naughty kids, they know. And I said, why are you here and someone who isn't, there's always, you know, you'd have had them in your school, that the one or two kids that you know, every exam they're going to get like 99%, 100%, mm -hmm. they're going to leave school with A stars and everything. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they naughty? Why are you naughty? And they're not. And you see, I'm thinking, well, I've never really thought about that. Yeah. And you tell them, say, look, there's, no, there's nothing in school for you. What is the, why should you behave? Why should you behave in school? You, you're being tested in, in such a specific skill set, i.e. remembering stuff and being able to write it back down. Such a very specific skill. Mm -hmm. And it's actually almost irrelevant. In it's the, mega in the, outdated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're not particularly good at that, then what is in, in school for you? What mm -hmm. is the point of school for you? Right. Why should I 
as an adult or your teachers told you should be behaving yourself mm -hmm. and engaging with this and, fo and following all the rules even though none of this is for you mm. you know we've, we've even put you in a set called you know D or whatever it is mm. you know we've already put you down there and said yeah you're not up there with them you're not in this class with them you know we, we even segregate children mm. in their ability to do something which is so outdated now. Yes. It's, it's irrelevant I think it's the old model where they used to you know, work hard at school, get your grades, get this job, work your way up, work for 40 years, making this business loads of money, when you retire, thank you very much, here's your gold watch, enjoy your 20 years retirement. But that's, that's our grandparents' generation. We weren't even that, it was, it was more, in my generation, might have mentioned that I'm old. Even <laughs> <laughs> um, my generation, it was nothing other than a filter for those that were going to go on the shop floor, mm -hmm. to those that were going to go out in the office, right. it was nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, if you look at the amount of people who went to university from my school, my year, probably one or two people, because right. no one in Dagenham went to university. Mm -hmm. Only like the really unusually clever kids did, mm -hmm. and they get a scholarship somewhere or something like that, you know. But the ninety-nine percent of them weren't. The school was never based around a stepping stone for further education. Right. It wasn't even that good. It was nothing more than a filter between doing O-levels, which is what old people used to do, and CSEs. Right. So you, had, you even had two different qualifications. You had O-levels, which were GCSEs. GCSEs, yeah. yeah. The equivalent of a GCSE mm -hmm. meant you could then take that further in education if you wanted to but no one ever did, only a very, very small proportion did. You had CSEs, um, a Certificate of Secondary Education, which is what fit kids done. Right. It was nothing other than, yeah, this, this kid can knuckle down, he can read and write, and he can probably operate every machine, mm. not much else. It was nothing other, uh, other than a, fi a filter for that. And the education system, not schools, I'm, I'm, I only see the schools where they can be bothered to step out of their comfort zone and actually get someone like me and you in mm -hmm. to inspire the kids. So we only see probably the better schools because they're the only ones that can, you know, will go out and, and, and do that and allocate time for that sort of thing. Or it's got teachers that are willing to put themselves out to get on the internet and find me or you and send us an email and say, will you? Mm -hmm. But the majority of schools, that the whole education system is still geared up around that. Mm. And it's it's so undated. In fact, if you was to sit down and think, let's come up with a way of absolutely ruining our kids' childhood. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's it. There you <laughs> go. For no reason whatsoever. And, and try and make this as pointless as we We'd be hard done to come up with a system mm. that they've got now. And, and I mean, they started progressing towards, you know, qualifications where, where your coursework actually went towards it. So if, right. you, if you could put in some hard work, mm -hmm. then, but then, you know, then they just turned around and went, nope, we're going to go back to the 1970s, mm -hmm. chalkboards and, and everything rests on one final exam. Mm -hmm. What is the point in that? I yeah. mean, if you want to know anything, what do you do? Google. <laughs> they got my smartphone, speak to Alexa. It's, it's actually preparing children mm. to get out there and be the entrepreneurs, to yeah. be the people who are making things, to be the engineers. Yeah. It's irrelevant. It's almost if like you, you hope your kids go through this nonsense without being messed up so too much mm. so that they then can start learning and preparing mm -hmm. for life at work and, mm. and, and actually, you know, contributing to society. You you almost it's it's almost well, it isn't almost. It's like education. The education system we've got is a hindrance to doing that. Right, right. It's, it's complete nonsense. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. I hear you. But it's great what you do. You know, you go in there and you, you tell them your story, give them a perspective, teach them some of, some of your lessons. Before we wrap up, what's next? Oh, yeah. The physical um, challenges, I mean. Yeah, what we, what we yeah. Do. It's... 
the, 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 I've been asked to be part of a thing called uh, Forces for Nature, which is an Amazonian kayak. Um, it's good friends that um, some guys that we know as well um, uh, are on that. Uh, so we'll be kayaking the entire length of the Amazon okay. uh, River, which will be amazing. That's August 2020, so August next year. Okay. And I'm now working on a project for myself. Uh, which will be the year after, which will be uh, August 2021. And I'm calling it at the moment as a working title, the triathlon of Great Britain. Yep. So essentially it's a triathlon. Um, so the clock will start at the start of the swim and finish with the end of a run. Well, it, I say run, oh, I can't run. <laughs> It'll be a hobble hang, <laughs> at, hang, at on, best. hang on, before you go on, what is the swim? Because yeah. we talked about this before we started recording, yeah. so let's let everyone know what the swim, the actual stage of this triathlon are. Okay, so the clock will start as soon as I get in the uh, in the water at Dover. Okay. And I shall swim the channel yeah. and then get as to uh, Land's End as quickly as I can to then cycle straight away from Land's End to John O'Groves, but taking in both uh, Snowden and Scarfield Pike, mm -hmm. and then get as quickly as I can down from uh, John Groats to uh, Fort William, and do a marathon over Ben Nevis, uh, finishing at Springbridge Memorial. So you've got the uh, swim, bike, ride elements, but all together, um, it will be a thousand miles, and I hope to do it in 10 days or less. That's insane, mate. And you, like, again, we talked about this before, you've picked three iconic, you know, British events, you know, swim the channel, John's, uh, John O'Groats to land down on the bike, three highest peaks, and then finish at the Speenbridge Memorial, you know, as a Royal Marinas, you know, one of the best places that you can do that. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's, uh, it's a long way off. There's a lot of training between now and then. Yeah. So when did you have the idea for the triathlon? Um, I, I actually, I was in intensive care straight after um, the accident, so okay. we'd been in the first uh, five days. I remember the surgeon coming down, the woman who um, took off my leg, she came down to check up on it, and uh, I asked her, I said, will I be able to run a marathon in a year? And uh, she was like, yeah, yeah, of course you will, of course you will, actually. Mm. I, because of the injuries to my left leg, I can't run. Yeah. And uh, so the the, the walking elements of it, i.e. going up the uh, the three peaks and the last bit, like the marathon bit, that will that will push me to the to the very limits of what's possible for mm -hmm. me. So that'll be that'll be really difficult. Yeah, but you're looking forward to it. I am. Yeah, yeah. Just another another massive mountain, excuse the pun, uh, <laughs> to climb and overcome. And I'm sure, mate, you know, like everything else you've done, you'll smash it. It's it's um you've heard me talking about schools and, and, and I hope it comes across how genuinely passionate I am about mm -hmm. that. And I am. But doing dark things like running the Atlantic, like doing the, the triathlon of Great Britain if it ends up being called that, mm -hmm. it gives you the uh, legitimacy I think to stand up. It's the doorway to to that opens that allows you to stand up in front of mm -hmm. uh, a group of children and then listen to you. Yeah. Um, and it also, uh, well, I was coming to the end of my career and I extended. I didn't go outside, I thought I'd stay in for a little bit longer. So I thought about and considered quite. Um, you know, quite uh, deeply about going outside and I thought the thing that I'm going to miss absolutely is going to be the laugh, the jokes, the yeah. lads, the way of life. And it isn't the thing that I miss is doing something that matters, mm -hmm. doing something that, that genuinely has a purpose. And we all make light of it and, and none of us take it seriously whilst we're serving. But it is what we do, mm -hmm. what we've done mattered. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you. And this allows me to continue the matter, I suppose. Yeah. Gives you that, that sense of purpose and that drive. It does, and everything I, I do, bearing that in mind, everything I do 
has to be for the right reasons now. So it's kind of a, a mantra that I take through forward in what I do. What is the purpose of me doing this? Why am I doing it? And if and if it's for the right reason, then um, it gives it that legitimacy for myself, mm -hmm. which is really important. But also, I'm a great believer that if, if people do things for that not necessarily for the right reasons, they're doing it for their self, for their profile, or for whatever, you know, they tend to kind of fall apart a little bit. Those things never have longevity. No. If you if you got a strong enough reason why you're doing something, when it gets tough, as I'm sure you experience on the on the road, you know that's what drags you out of that pit. Remembering why you started in the first place and what you're doing upon if it is legitimate, then it will drag you out. But like you say if you're doing it because you want people to tell you you're great or build your profile and you, you don't really strongly, passionately believe it in your core, then most people will just quit and give up. Yeah, absolutely. Lee, thank you, mate for being the first guest on the podcast. Absolutely honoured, man. Um, cheers, man. I wish you all the best with everything we all do, mate, here at the charity. And hopefully, you know, when you're doing these other challenges, either before, maybe during, or, or certainly after, we can we can check back in and record another episode and let everyone know you're gone. Absolutely, that'd be perfect. Mate, yeah. thank you. Cheers, buddy. Thank you, appreciate it. Cheers, mate. <laughs> well, that was it. Episode one of the Charlie Charlie One podcast. And I don't think we could have got it off to a better start. If you want to keep up to date and follow Lee, you can find him on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, he is under Lee Spencer and on a separate account, The Rowan Marine. On Twitter, it's underscore Lee J Spencer. And Instagram is Lee J Spencer 1664. So if you've enjoyed the episode, why not hop onto one of those social media platforms, connect with Lee, send him a little message and let him know what you thought.